Amen. Are you encouraged, church? Amen. So glad you guys can be seated. He is risen. Got to do that on Easter. Church people love that. All right, I couldn't miss it, but just so you know, and if you didn't know that was the thing, we can do it one more time. He is risen. Amen, amen. So glad to be with you today. My name is Paul. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, I'm the lead pastor here at Golfside. And today, I, I had a weird, one of those weird occurrences. It happens every once in a while in each one of our lives. I was driving down Pine Island Road, getting ready to take a left into a parking lot. And right in front of me, there was someone else who was turning left as well. And when they went to make the left... There was a car in the right-hand turning lane on the other side who decided they just wanted to go straight. And they didn't stop. They didn't look. They just went through. And boom, pieces everywhere right in front of me. You've been in the time where you, where you see an accident and like your heart just stops. The cars spin around and you get that weird feeling in your gut. Thankfully, everyone was okay. They got out of the car and started blaming each other like we always do, even if we know that we were wrong. But immediately in my head, I, and I've had this thought so many other times before, is that every intersection that I drive through, it just reminds me of the cross. And not just because it's shaped like a cross, because it's one of those things that it's so easy to go through an intersection and not even think about what you're doing. When stress creeps in, when you've just had an argument, when you're upset, when you're thinking about something else, it's so easy. Probably each of us can call back a memory to a time where we are under a lot of stress and we just blew right through a red light and didn't even see it. We didn't look around, we didn't understand where we were, were, and it put ourselves and it put other people in danger. And thankfully, if you're hearing my voice today, you survived it, you were okay. But it's one of those things. So many people go right past the cross and, and they don't understand. They don't understand what it means. They don't have any reverence for the situation. They don't understand that if they would stop and consider what the cross means, that it would change the complete direction of their life. In every intersection we go through, we make a choice. Are we going down this path or are we going to take a turn and go a different way? And that's what the cross is all about. The cross isn't about making you feel guilty. The cross is saying there's a different way to live your life that will set you free from guilt. And today, my, my points are going to be kind of weird today because I'm not going to make necessarily a specific point. I actually have two questions for you today that I want you to be able to answer for yourself. And the first question is, is the cross personal to you? Our main passage that we're going to look at today is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And we'll put this up, the first part of it on the screen. And it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Galatia, and he correctly identifies the personal nature about the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ isn't about the fact that something happened one time and it just happened for everyone and you just need to know that it happened. The cross of Christ is specific to you to recognize, do I believe? Is my faith in what Jesus did on the cross? Have I made a decision to make him Lord over my life? And the way that you interact with the cross is going to change things. And so many of us say, you know what, Paul? I might be more interested in God. I might be more interested in being a Christian if God would just give me a sign. Then it would become personal to me. 
And I want to tell you, the people on the outside of your life looking in, they feel like when you're still asking for a sign, it looks kind of like this picture. Lord, if he's not for me, give me a sign. And the sign couldn't hit you any harder in the face. The sign couldn't be more obvious to the people around you. But there's something within you that just says, I'm just not ready to make the choice yet. And I want to go through just some of the evidence, some of the signs that God has written to you through scripture, through the church, and through your experience to show you that God has been doing amazing things to communicate to you. One of the first things is when you look at scripture from the beginning to the end of the story, when you look into what, what is often referred to as the law or the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, God did something incredible in it. If you go in Genesis, and I learned this from John Bevere, and he was talking about this, that if you go in the book of Genesis, one of the amazing things that you see in Genesis and Exodus is that if you look at one of the first letters and then you count 50 letters in, it's, it spells T-O-R, another 50 letters R, another 50 letters H, and it spells out Torah. And then it does that again in Exodus. And then it doesn't do it in Leviticus, but what is Torah? First of all, Torah, we often say it's the law, but that's actually not a really good translation. One of the most literal translations for Torah is flow, and it actually means like the flow of an archer's arrow, the way an archer's arrow flies. And the Torah is supposed to guide us in the way that, that, that we lived before Christ came. And the Torah was pointing us towards a target. The word sin, we think of, oh, that's just a list of things we're supposed to do and not. Sin actually means when you miss the target. And so the instruction that, that God gives us of how to live, Torah, that's talking about the flow of an arrow. Sin, that's talking about when the arrow misses its mark. It's supposed to help guide you. But what is it guiding you towards? It's interesting that Leviticus doesn't do that. But when you go to Deuteronomy and Numbers, both of them do that. But they actually, this is the crazy thing. You start in Deuteronomy and you get H instead of T. And then you get R instead of O. And then you get O and then you get T. It's spelled backwards in the next two books. But when you go to Leviticus that they skipped, it doesn't do that. What it actually does is it spells the name of God, Yahweh, the personal name for God. And it's every seven letters. And it's one of the reasons why you have to be a student of scripture and not just someone who hears the pastor regurgitate what they've been feeding on spiritually. You have to be a student because there's so many evidences like this that's so easy to miss that if you don't ever actually dig in. And so Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy, they're both pointing back towards Leviticus, which is not a real exciting book, but the book is all about how holy God is and how he's created pathways for you to connect with him that you would know him personally, that from the very beginning of scripture, God's desire is not that you just follow a rule book, but that you would know him by name. Is God personal to you yet? I mean, that's one of the evidences, that the amazing way that scriptures work together. One of them, when, when we get to the cross of Jesus Christ, I wanna tell you, one of my favorite verses about the cross of Jesus Christ is actually in the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms was written about a thousand years before Christ ever lived. Like that doesn't seem to make much sense. It's amazing because in Psalm 22, God spoke prophetically through King David. 
And I want you to know that this is affirmed by all Hebrew people that Psalms predates Jesus. There's archeological evidence that shows all of this existed before the time of Christ. But listen to this description. First of all, if you know a thing about Christ when he was on the cross, it talks about how he was thirsty. If you know anything about getting crucified, you know that his hands and his feet were pierced. That they gave him sour wine to drink while he was up on the cross because he was so thirsty. The people gambled for his clothes as he was dying on the cross, as he was sur surrounded by mockers and Roman guards. You know those things about the cross. Listen to Psalm 22, starting at verse 16. And this is David speaking prophetically. And he says, I'm poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery and my tongue clings to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. This was written 1044 BC. This was written about 400 years before crucifixion was invented by the Persians. And after it was invented by the Persians, it was about 300 years later when the Romans looked at that and said, we kind of like that style of execution. And then they used it for another 300 years before they ever used it on Jesus Christ. This prophecy about the death of the Messiah was written before the style of execution was even invented. How incredible is God? How, is it, how incredible is the evidence that he provided for his people that they would know who the Messiah was? And while Jesus was on the cross, and we have a description of it, Psalm 22 is so incredibly interesting to me because one of the other things that happens on the cross that I think confuses a lot of people is that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we don't know, we almost seem like, was, was Jesus losing faith there? Like that seems a little like, like not very WWJD. Like it, it doesn't seem very encouraging. It doesn't like, my, God, you've left me? Why did Jesus say this? Well, Jesus was doing something that is almost like when you quote a line of a song where everybody knows and they know how to finish it. And I know th these ain't church songs, but I know some of you guys, especially my 90s people in here, I'm gonna need you to talk back to me in a second here to affirm that you know this. But like, if I were to, to say, somebody once told me the world. Okay, yeah, you know that. Like, so if I say that, or if I'm like, um, just a small town girl. Okay, you get it. Okay, there's some things that if you start to say it, everybody else can fill in the blank. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first verse of Psalm 22. What Jesus was quoting was pointing everyone's eyes to what was foretold. And when he says that, all of the Hebrew people who had grown up studying and singing the Psalms, the Psalms are songs, they're spiritual songs that they would sing and memorize. Jesus gave them the first verse and any Hebrew person who didn't think he was the Messiah, it would have felt like they got punched in the stomach at that moment. They would have looked at his hands and his feet and they would have said, what is going on here? And though the first verse in the middle section that I read to you, it might sound negative. I want you to know how that chapter ends. Go, going, going back into Psalms, starting at verse 25 in Psalm 22, and we'll put this up on the screen. It says, for you, 
For from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. Does that sound like the mission of Jesus Christ right there? It's not just about Israel. It's about the whole earth. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Does that have echoes of Philippians chapter two that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? Does that remind you in the New Testament when it says from every tribe, every nation, every tongue? This is speaking about Jesus. The, The passage continues on in verse 28. For royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship and bow before him. All who are, who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. This is talking about you too prophetically a thousand years before Jesus ever walked on this earth as he was known. Prophetically, you are in Psalms 22 as people will hear about the righteous acts. And the goal, the objective right there in Psalms 22 is that the nations would know God and be brought back to him. When we ask God, if you would just give me a sign, he's like, I've hit you in the face with signs. I've had your children drag you to church when you didn't want to go because there was a helicopter. God has put people around you that maybe even after you've been hurt by Christians, that you're like, that Christian's a little bit different. And they give me hope that not all Christians are like those other people in my past. You know, and, and then you get into other biblical evidence like Christ's miracles. The fact that he cared for the poor and he would heal the sick. He would walk on water and he did things that astounded the people of the day. His teachings today are still as relevant as they were at the time that he spoke. Christ's miracles were a sign for you as well. The death of Christ was a sign for you, not just the prophecy, but the fact that he actually physically died. To make sure that he was dead, the soldiers, they pierced him through his side as well to ensure his death. So that when he rose from the grave, listen, the Romans knew how to kill people. And they knew how to make sure that their jobs were completed. Just because another evidence is that he died, that he was pierced, that he was put into the grave. He was protected by Roman soldiers. Did you know that if a Roman soldier was derelict in their duty, that if they did not complete the job that was assigned to them, they would be killed in front of the other troops. And so if you served in the Roman army long enough, you would see people who were like you get killed because they ran from battle or they ran from responsibility or they failed at it. So when a Roman guard is positioned in front of the stone, the disciples couldn't move them because they knew if they ran from them, they would get killed by the Romans anyway. I mean, just another evidence of the day that Christ died. And the biggest sign, and this is the thing, when you look at the disciples after Christ died on the cross, they were running scared. 
They didn't want anything to do with Christ's message anymore. The apostle Peter, who it says the church, he was the first real leader. Jesus said, Peter, on this rock, I'm gonna build the church on you, on your leadership, on that kind of faith. I'm gonna build it on you. Did you know that when Christ was, was being tormented and put to death, Peter was literally calling down curses saying, I don't even know the guy. Like I would have to censure it. You know, I don't know the guy. Beep. That's spiritual leadership right there, Peter. Good job. All of the disciples were running scared because they thought when Jesus died, it ended. Even though they saw those miracle signs that Christ did. And if you think that seeing an angel, seeing a miracle, getting a sign, asking God to send down lightning, and he sends down lightning and blows up a tree, if you think that would settle all of your faith problems, you're wrong. Because throughout the course of scripture, we see people that would see God do incredible things, but they'd fall into their old ways because that won't fix your faith. You have to make a decision to trust God for the seen and for the unseen. But the thing here is that when the resurrection happened, that was something that completely changed the disciples. They went from people who were running scared, who said, I will never give up on this message and the power that it brings into people's hearts. It was a piece of evidence that changed everything for them because they were running scared even though they saw miracles, but once they saw the resurrection, it changed for them personally. And this is the thing, is the cross of Christ personal to you yet? Or is it a place that your family made you go? Is it something that's always been external? Have you placed your faith in him? This is the rest of Galatians chapter two, verse 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wanna suggest to you with all kindness and patience that the issue that holds back most people's faith It isn't evidence because there's good external evidence. There's good historical evidence. There's evidence inside of your heart that draws you towards God. The issue that holds most of us up is that place where Paul says, it's no longer I who live because we wanna do things our way. We wanna hold on to the addictions that we've held. We wanna continue on in this path because we don't wanna deal with the mistakes that we've made. And there's part of us that refuses to bend the knee before God because of our pride, because of our ego, not because of the evidence, because the evidence is there. Two people can look at the the same evidence and then they come to two different conclusions. And when you look at the cross of Christ, that's where we're at today, Easter, Easter weekend, one of the really interesting things about the cross of Christ is there's a thief on each side of them. And when you look at both gospel stories, it tells you that at first, both of the thieves were ridiculing Christ. Oh, you think you're a religious person, you think you're a ruler, and they're, and they're, they're looking at him and they're criticizing him. But towards the end, one of the thieves on the cross, he looked at Christ and said, you're a righteous man. Will you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's a really interesting passage for a lot of reasons. But Alistair Begg, who is a a pastor that I watch, he he talked about this and he did such a, a beautiful job 
that I, I wanted to give you his perspective on it. Um, Alistair said, that, that person, that thief on the cross, he said, when I get to heaven one day, that's the first person I want to look for and I want to ask him a couple questions. Because it must have been really weird for him to live a life of crime and then where he's on the cross and he's slowly creeping towards death, he's slowly suffocating on the cross. He has a conversation with Jesus and he ends up at the gates of heaven. And, you know, there, there, there's a gate because, you know, it, it, it's surrounded and it's beautiful. But what must it have been like for someone with no religious experience other than that one conversation with Jesus to be there? Because as he approaches, the person guarding the gate is probably going to say, <clears throat> um, why are you here today? And he'd say, well, I'm not sure. Well, okay, could you just tell us about your theology of justification? Could, could you tell me about your eschatology a little bit? Were you baptized? Uh, what, what's your view on the authority of Scripture in your life? Can you recount your volunteer hours to us? And the guy's just like, nope, nope, nope. Actually, the last thing I did before they put me on the cross is, is I, was, I was stealing and, and I was abusing drugs and I was using profane language. Even I was profaning the actual Messiah himself before I got here. And the guy guarding the gate had to be like, I need a supervisor at gate six, please. I don't know why he's here. His record is terrible. And he doesn't know why he's here either. And the supervisor approaches and says, on what basis are you here? And the thief would simply say, the man on the center cross said I could come. Now listen to me. If you think you need to clean yourself up before you come to God, it's not how it works. If you think you need to make your way out of addiction before you ask God for help, it's not how it works. The thief is a great example that once you make the decision, once you make the declaration, once you ask Christ for forgiveness, he extends it and you don't get to earn it. You don't get to feel like you did this on your own and you, you worked enough and you became good enough. You don't get to do that because grace is given through faith. Forgiveness is given through faith. And just like the intersection, it's so easy to go by the cross and never experience its power. It's so easy to move through church and never experience transformation because you just go through it mindlessly. But I want to challenge you. I want to ask you, is the cross personal to you? And is it powerful? Is it powerful in your life? Because if your belief in God has not displayed power to change your heart, power to drive out the dep depression, power to heal what is behind you, power to give you hope for what's ahead of you. If you haven't experienced the power of God in your life, then you haven't really placed your faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Because this is what we know. None of us are good enough. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we could never be good enough to earn our way back to heaven. But God so loves you that he sent his son, his one and only son, so that whoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. Band, if you guys will come out, I'm going to wrap this thing up. The hope of heaven 
is important. It's important to know that when your life ends, that you'll enter into eternal life. But if that's the only thing that you think Christianity is about, I would challenge you to study scripture as well as talk to some other people because the reason that we choose Christ now isn't just eternal life, it's abundant life here. The fruits of the spirit, the things that are supposed to be in our life when we make a decision to follow Christ are peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness. I'm not against psychology or counseling. I actually think it's very powerful. I'm gonna tell you, so many people are paying money for pills and trying to get hope from a counselor that you're supposed to find in God himself. There's healing from what's behind you that can be found in the name of Jesus Christ. And especially for those of you who feel like you've exhausted all the other options and tried all the other things, I want you to know that there is hope today because what Christ did on the cross and his resurrection, his resurrection changes everything. Changed everything for the disciples and it will change everything for you. I'm gonna ask that everyone would just stand with us and I'm gonna pray in a moment. And I wanna call your attention, I wanna turn off the radio in your car for a minute, the things that are playing in the background of your mind, and I want to call your attention to the fact that you're at an intersection in your life. And some of you guys have been waiting for this, but you haven't been really looking for it, though you, know you, though you know you have needed it. This is a point where you can get back on track with God. He invites you back in. But there's a decision that needs to be made. It needs to be personal to you before it becomes powerful for you. And as someone who sat where you did and needed to make the decision just like you did, I wanna encourage you, take the leap, take the jump. He will catch you, he will provide. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Father, would you impress upon our hearts for those of us who need that fresh start, who need to get things right with you. And scripture promises that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart that God, you raised him from the dead, you say that we will be saved and that we will be new creations. And church, as every head is bowed and eyes closed, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to ask you to put a physical movement to the spiritual decision that you're making. If you're taking a step to get right with God today, would you just raise your hand for just a moment so I can pray for you? I see you. Praise God, I see you. Amen, I see you. Good, praise God, praise God. Uh, you can put your hands down. Father, those who are making the decision, would you just right now in their heart, would your spirit begin to move in their mind and in their heart? Would you affirm to them by your presence that you are healing and you are forgiving and you are restoring and you are beginning a work that will be powerful and that will transform their future? And we thank you that you are a loving God who calls to us and gives us a place where we can change directions and we are thankful for the cross what it means to us today in Jesus' name.